Well, hello, everybody. It's great to see you this morning, and it is great to be back. <clears throat> we had a wonderful time at Yosemite. I'd been there as a kid, but Kathy had never been there, and I'd forgotten how beautiful that place is. It's like a little touch of the kingdom of God right there in California, of all places. California could use a little touch of the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm glad that uh, Yosemite's there, but it was beautiful. And uh, my thanks to uh, Emmanuel and, for, and to Rome for filling in the last couple of weeks. The podcast was encouraging. It was sort of uh, frightening when, when I thought that Emmanuel was going to do a whole, whole sermon on just four words. I thought, good grief, what if this guy tried to make it through the whole Bible? It was kind of, it was neat. And then Rome sort of scared me because when he said he was going to be talking about Ephesians, I thought, I'm talking about Ephesians next week. But fortunately, it was marriage, and so, you know, I won't be talking about marriage this morning. But we will talk about Ephesians. But last time, um, when we got back from, or on our way back from, Yosemite, we got to the airport and we're supposed to fly back on Saturday in order to be here on Sunday. So Saturday, 2 o'clock, was when our plane was supposed to leave. We were sitting there on the plane and, you know, 30 minutes on the tarmac and the captain finally comes on with a little pause and says, uh, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, so sorry to tell you, and then you know what's coming after that. Anyway, he talk, talked about um, problems with the landing gear. And I thought, you know what, details. As long as we can take off, we'll be in good shape, you know? <laughs> Landing is way overrated anyway. So, but they, they couldn't get the part, um, and so we had to wait till the next morning. Consequently, we missed last week. So I was grateful to be able to go and grateful to be able to come back. When I fly, I try to drink a lot of water because I get really dehydrated on flights, especially like international flights. But even domestically, I just am used to drinking a lot of water. So when I'm at the airport, I very quickly figure out where all the men's rooms are. Well, I was, we were there in the Fresno airport, and it was my first trip to the men's room, walking around, uh, trying to find it. Well, I finally see the sign that says men, and there are two uh, you know, entrances here. You, you can go this way, you can go this way, both to go inside. And so I go to the right and go inside. Uh, and as I'm about to go inside the stall, I see the sign on the stall that, that shows a woman changing a baby. I thought, well, that's weird. And so I thought, well, that's, this is where you change babies. So walk in, close the door, and as I lock the stall, on the back of the stall is another sign that I have never seen before. And it talks about what is appropriate and inappropriate to flush. And I said, I don't think this is something a man should be reading. And then it hit me. I don't know if you've ever tried to get out of a locked stall in a panic. <laughs> but, I mean, when I was, I was in high school, I ran the 100-yard dash in 10.2 seconds. No kidding. I think I beat that getting out of the women's room there in the Fresno airport. I'm just so glad that there wasn't a woman coming around the corner because I would have taken her out. Can you imagine? Can you imagine poor ladies just trying to go to the restroom and this idiot comes out screaming? Well, it turns out what, what happened was the men's was on the left and the women's was on the right, and I thought it was a, you know, both ways go to the same 
place, but it was not the case. So anyway, that was the only time I made that mistake. The whole time I was there. Every other time, it worked just fine. But anyway, upon reflection, I thought about the truth that when you realize that you are where you shouldn't be, wisdom says to run. And not just run, but run where you should be. So let's look at the book of Ephesians together, and let's look at chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and just kind of hold that open for a moment as you get there. Well, we're continuing in our series where we take just a single message from each book of the Bible, and we are at the book of Ephesians. You know, Ephesians, or I should say the New Testament itself, and particularly the letters of Paul, are not arranged chronologically. They are, uh, I'm not real terribly sure the logic behind why they're arranged the way they are. Maybe it's size. They do seem to get a little smaller as time goes on. But um, Ephesians was like one of the last books that Paul wrote. He wrote it during his first imprisonment in Rome, but he wrote it to people that he was very familiar with. Uh, Ephesians first shows up in the Bible in the book of Acts when Paul was on his second missionary journey. He arrived in Ephesus at, in AD 52 with his friends Priscilla and, Priscilla and Aquila, and they uh, ministered there for some time. And then Paul later returned on his third missionary journey and lived in Ephesus for three years. In fact, most of the missionary journey was really just him living in Ephesus for three years. Uh, which would have been an incredible privilege. And then uh, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he writes this letter to his friends, those that he knew very well, in the city of Ephesus, the Christians there. So we've talked about this before, but just a quick review, and hopefully it's something that's helpful to you, and not just uh, mentally, but to be able to arrange it in your head. Paul had three missionary journeys. On his first journey, he wrote one book. On his second journey, he wrote two books. On his third journey, he wrote, can you guess, three books. And on his first Roman imprisonment, he wrote four books. Exactly. So now it gets harder. What are those books? On the first journey was one book, which was Galatians. Second journey was two books, which was first and second Thessalonians. Third journey was three books, which was Romans, first, second Corinthians. And then in Rome, for the first imprisonment, he wrote four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And then, of course, he wrote the pastoral epistles after that, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. But Ephesus, Ephesus was an amazing city. Um, it's amazing if you go there today, just the archaeology behind it. But it was a very wealthy city. It was the most important city in Asia Minor at that time because of its port. It had a port that allowed it to be a major hub of commercialism or commerce there in Asia Minor. And it was big business, not just because it was a great location, but because it was the location of the temple of Artemis. And Artemis was a goddess, a Greek goddess, who was worshipped. Um, for centuries she had been worshipped. And in Ephesus, in particular, she was worshipped as the goddess who protected women during childbirth. And so it's interesting if you look at uh, particularly Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, which was written to Timothy in Ephesus, there is a real emphasis on women 
having children, but on, on wives having children, but the context there, if you understand the context, is trusting Christ for that as opposed to trusting in Artemis. So the, the context helps shape it all. But the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Pyramids are still standing. They're like one of the only seven wonders of the ancient world still standing. But the Temple of Artemis, if you go to Ephesus today, your guide will take you to what looks like just this swampy bog. And there's one pillar, one pillar still standing that's been re, uh, re-erected. And it has a, a stork has actually built a nest on top of this pillar. That's all that's left of this great temple to Artemis is a stork uh, with, a, with its home on top of it, the lone pillar. But it was massive. It was uh, the size of a football field and a half in length and the width of a football field and a half in width. It was massive. And this was a, a huge issue of commerce for, for Ephesus, and it was a big contrast with what Paul taught, uh, as, we, as we'll get into. So anyway, as Paul is teaching them here in Ephesus, his major emphasis is their walk with Christ. And so let's look at a few verses about this great theme of the walk with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, let's start right in verse 1, and we're going to look at a few verses before we land on our major verse. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of of disobedience. Look down at verse uh, 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Notice the emphasis in verse 2, verses, verse 10. In verse 2, you formally walked according to the course of this world. Verse 10, God prepared these good works that we would walk in them. He is contrasting the walk or the, the manner of life before Christ and after Christ. The difference that Jesus Christ makes in our lives is shown in our walk with God. And notice, too, the difference that is made there is God's grace. It says, We used to walk in the world, walking after the lust of our flesh and the desires of the world, but God, verse 4, but God. I've heard, uh, I think, I don't know if it was Chuck or somebody else who said it, but I know Chuck said it. He says he wants to write a book on the great buts of the Bible. And this would be one of them. But God, the great contrast, the, the great situation of trouble, and then the great contrast that leads to God's grace intervening. How essential that verse 4 be in this book because of the great pivot there. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice that. This is why God saved us his mercy, his great love. Even, verse 5, when we were dead in our transgressions. And we read in verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. God's grace didn't basically make it okay for us to earn our salvation. God's grace came along because we couldn't earn our salvation. Just this week, I was talking with a lady. It had to do with a, with a work issue, an issue regarding to work, and the subject of Jesus came up. And so I asked her if, you know, if you were to die today and stand in front of God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? She kind of looked around and said, well, you know, I've, I've lived a good life and I've, I've tried to do what the Bible says. And anyway, she just kept going on with good works. And so I explained what Paul's written here. And it's something that we all have to come to grips with in a very real way that wouldn't it be great if we could earn our way to heaven because then we'd have something to boast about. Hey, you know why I'm here? I had 50 years of faithful church attendance. Well, that's great, buddy. I had 60 years of faithful church attendance. See, it'd be a boasting match, wouldn't it? But Paul tells us here, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Heaven is not an autograph book. The, I should say the book of life is not an autograph book on great people. It is a record of the grace of God. Our names are written in the book of life by the grace of God. And it happens, we're told here, by grace through faith. In other words, the means by which God's grace is applied to our lives comes when we believe, simply, that it's the gift of God. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose again to show that our sins were paid for. What a wonderful truth. No wonder they call it the good news, the gospel. But notice, it says, we're not saved, verse 9, as a result of good works, but verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, good works are there in verse uh, 9 and verse 10. We're not saved by works. We are saved for works. We are not saved by works, but we're saved for Four works. God has saved us by, by His grace, not because of anything we've done, but He's saved us so that we will live a life of, of good works. And notice it says that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When I was in second grade, I met a boy named Scott, and Scott and I became fast, fast friends, best friends. Every weekend, we were at one another's house, spending the night, doing the crazy things that kids do. And fi finally, one day, my dad had a Super 8 camera with a blank roll of film. And Scott and I thought, let's make a movie. And so here we are, two kids. I think we were in junior high by this time. And we made a, I don't know what it was, it was a dumb little movie. But we showed it to our friends, and the friends loved it. And they laughed, and they thought, this is fantastic. So we made another one, and another one, and another one. And by the time we were done making movies and we went our separate ways in high school, we'd made like 30-something <laughs> movies. And some were like had a plot and everything. I mean, <laughs> these were real, real movies, not just a couple of guys goofing off. In fact, it so impacted Scott's life, what we did, that he went on to major in radio, television, and film, and now he is a videographer, a professional 
uh, director of photography for like HGTV, films golf courses all over the world. I mean, the guy's the real thing. And uh, I went on to major in classical guitar at the University of North Texas. <laughs> but after I, while I was at North Texas, the Lord also directed me to a church in Denton that taught the word and, and got me involved in not only understanding the Bible, but understanding it on a level that I never knew was possible. That church introduced me to Dallas Seminary, and I went to Dallas Seminary in order to learn how to write theologically sound songs. That's the only reason I went was so that, um, you know, if, if I ever uh, wrote a song, that it would be true. Well, when I got there, the Lord changed my passion from what I thought would be like a national music ministry to a local music ministry because the church that we were a part of was planting another church, and they asked that I'd be the music guy for that church and said, sure. And this is where I also met my wife, and we got involved with the church. We planted this church, and then five years into that church, the pastor left, and they asked me to be the pastor because I'd been filling in the pulpit you know, while the pastor was out to Yosemite or wherever, wherever he'd go. And, and the Lord changed my passion from music ministry to teaching, and I did that for nine years. And all that time Kathy and I were involved in that church, I began to write articles for the local paper, and we also went to Israel for the first time, which was life-changing for me because it showed me that the Bible has a context beyond words that uh, what we believe actually happened in time and space and geography, and the better I understand that, the better I understand the Word. And it transformed my understanding of the Scriptures, and I thought, I want to share this with other people. And so I began doing that. Well, one thing led to another, and I found myself in a new role at a little radio program called Insight for Living, in which I was a writer, and I also began being involved in the, in the uh, leader, leadership there and uh, introduced video to the ministry, which they'd never been using prior to that, which was amazing, and uh, got to help with a lot of the Israel tours that Inside for Living did. And then about five years ago, I found myself in another transition in which I thought, I wonder if there would be any interest in the body of Christ for me to take everything that God has done in my past, music, video, teaching, theology, Israel, and put it together in a way that makes it accessible for people who can't go to Israel or who have been but, you know, want to relive their experience. So I put together a, a, a ministry or a, a membership site, which, which is really what it is, where people can do that, can experience the Holy Land through a virtual, virtual experience. Now, I say all that to say, oh, and one more thing. I did that with that little second grade guy that I met. I called Scott and said, would you have any interest in going to Israel and helping me film this and that? He said, sure. And so we did it. And he and I have been to Israel and Jordan and Turkey and Greece and Egypt and Rome filming I don't know, it's like 160, 170 different biblical sites so far. Now, I share all that to say, here's my point. God was not just making plans for me to go to second grade. 
God was to use Paul's words, preparing beforehand so that we would walk in them. It takes hindsight sometimes to look back and to see the things that we thought were accidents in our lives or just coincidences were not that. But it was God preparing us unaware for the future. He's done that in your life, too. In fact, he's doing it in your life, and he's doing it in mine. Here's the first principle that we can glean from this text, and it's pretty simple. God has fashioned us for today's good works that we would pursue them. God has fashioned us for today's good works so that we would pursue them. Paul says we are his workmanship. What a beautiful word. We are God's workmanship, created, in other words, began, begun in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That single verse has enough uh, meat in it to sustain you with purpose for the rest of your life. There is a confidence there that you know that God is not passive in your life. He's very much active. He has been active since day one. In fact, he's been active before the creation of the world. God created you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he has created you, first of all, in Christ, but not just to be a Christian. He's created you to be a Christian so that you can walk in the good works that he's prepared and that, he, that he's prepared beforehand. He's such an amazing, sovereign God that he has worked your life in ways you didn't even know so that today you can walk in a, in a specific way that's unique to you, that you can contribute to the body of Christ in a way that's unique to you. And notice it says the purpose there in verse 10 is so that we would walk in them. He wants you to walk in them. He has prepared you to walk in them. Not to watch them go by, but to walk in them. God has fashioned us for today's good works. Think about the variety of, of experiences in your background, where you've lived, whom you've known, your education, your upbringing, your careers, the people that have influenced you, the experiences that you've had, the sorrow that you've had, the death that you have experienced. God wasn't asleep at the wheel when all that happened. That all happened for a purpose, to equip you that you would be effective where you are right now. Let's keep looking. The walk is not done. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Look at verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 
Notice in these, these verses we've kind of skimmed over that Paul urges them and us by principle not merely to walk in good deeds like he said in chapter 2, but now he tells us how to do it. How do we walk in good deeds? In chapter 4 he says, do it in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He says, uh, don't walk any longer like the Gentiles walked, but rather, chapter 5, walk in love and Jesus is your model. Do it just as he did and gave himself up for, for us. And uh, you saw this probably last week with the, uh, this command repeated for husbands down in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the example is Jesus who sacrificed himself, and as a result, he is our model. Paul would use places familiar in order to um, sort of get a, give a memory trigger. Here's a great example. Look down at verse 15. Verse 15. He says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul would use places familiar to them. For example, when he was in Corinth, he actually, if you read in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul stood on the judgment seat. If you've ever been to Corinth or if you ever get to go to Corinth, you're going to walk down the main street there and there's a large raised platform. The, the, it's probably about as tall as the, the top of the lectern here, probably about four feet off the ground. It's probably more than that. It's probably more like five feet off the ground. But uh, it, it's this raised platform, and on it there's this sign written in Greek that says Bema. Bema means judgment seat. And this is where, according to the book of Acts, Paul stood when he was uh, brought before the uh, official there for uh, judgment. And this was an area that everybody in Corinth would have been familiar with. I mean, it was right there in the marketplace. You walked by it every time, you know, you go to, to, to get your bagels. It was right there on the main street. And so when Paul talks about that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, every one of those Corinthians would have thought, ah, he's talking about the Bema. And then when they walk down that street, every time they see that, it would trigger in their mind, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. It was Paul used their culture to remind them of their spiritual life. He does the same thing here in Ephesians because he says here in Ephesians, he says, making the most of the time, verse 16. You may have a marginal reading like I do that says, redeeming the time. It's a financial word. And the word is actually in Greek, ex agorazo. The agorazo is from the word agora, which is the marketplace. And so if you go to Ephesus, there's a large area there that is the agora or the marketplace, and everyone in Ephesus would have known about it because that's where you go to shop. It's like if Paul used some word and, and uh, says, you know, uh, Walmart the time or, you know, Nordstrom's the time. I don't know. Does anybody go to Nordstrom's? Anybody admit going to Nordstrom's? <laughs> but Paul is using something that everyone would have known. Make the most of your time. When you go there, you buy stuff. And he is, but he says this word is not just basically going by, but buy out. 
to completely buy out. It's like Walmart has a, a 95% sale, you know, off of uh, toilet paper or whatever it was. Remember back when it seems like you couldn't find any? That's the idea, that you buy it completely out. You don't just go and you buy this or that, but you go and you clean the shelves off. That's the idea. Paul says, make the most of your time. Completely buy out your time. And the word that he uses here for time is not a lifetime, but a season of time, a small time, which is why it's sometimes translated as opportunity. Uh, Make the most of your opportunity. There's a parallel passage in Colossians that says this, and I think that it's translated as opportunity there. But it's the same idea. Make the most of your time. Completely buy out the opportunity that God has in your life right now. And, by the way, he's prepared good works for this season for you to walk in them. Remember, the whole book fits together. So, we know about the limits of time in regard to salvation, don't we? You've got this life to trust in Christ, and after that, it's appointed for everyone to die and face judgment. But apply that same truth to the season of life that you live in right now, because it's the same principle. You have a season of life, and once the season's gone, it's gone. We think about that a lot with regard to other seasons of life, don't we? Like, remember when we were kids, we wanted to be adults. And when we were singles, we wanted to be married. And when we're married, we wanted to have kids. When we had kids, we wanted to be empty nesters. (laughs) And then when we're older, we look back on all those other seasons and wish we could go back and do it again. Wherever we are, we always want to be in the season we're not in. Paul says, don't think about life like that. Because you're going to wake up one day and all of a sudden all the seasons are gone. Make the most of the opportunity you find yourself in right now. The season that you find yourself in right now. So there's our second principle. God wants us to make the most of the season we're in right now. Think about what opportunities your current situation allows and don't think about the fact that, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old or, gosh, I just, I'm tired. And You know what? If you're still breathing, God's got a purpose for you. God gives you breath for a reason. Because, you know, a lot of people die young and never really get the opportunity that we have as older folks. Ephesus also shows us that there is a danger in serving God alone. And by that I mean not just merely making the most of the season you're in right now, but saying, you know what, I'm going to be productive for Jesus Christ and that's my goal. Great, but you know what? There's a danger if that's all your goal is. Let's leave Ephesians and turn to what you might call a mini Ephesians in Revelation. Look at the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Ephesus got some amazing teaching. Think about this. What if your church got two apostles living there? What if your church had uh, a book written to it, like Ephesians, if your pastor had two books written to him specifically from the Apostle Paul? This is what happened in Ephesus. Not only was 
Paul there, but the Apostle John also spent his last days in Ephesus, and while he was in Ephesus, probably wrote his gospel, the Gospel of John, as well as his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And then when he was exiled to the island of Patmos, he would write a letter back to Ephesus, which is what we'll look at here in Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 11, just kind of gives the context. But look at 111. It says, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. All churches in Asia Minor or modern Turkey today. I've been to every one of these places, and Ephesus by far stands tall not just archaeologically, but in its message. And it's first here in this lineup, probably for a reason. Let's look at that reason. Chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, and that's Jesus, by the way, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Wow, what a great church. This is 30 years after the Apostle Paul wrote to the, to, uh, the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. 30 years Ephesus has stood strong in their doctrine and in their deeds. Jesus himself commends them for it. But then notice verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. For decades, the Ephesians had faithfully served God in their doctrine and their deeds. They had not allowed any apostasy in leadership. They had come in and been faithful, and Jesus commended them. Their doctrine, their deeds, fantastic. But Jesus says, your devotion, it's not where it should be. You've left your first love. Ephesus is so fascinating to me because I think I mentioned up front that it had a major port. And if you go to Ephesus today, there's no water there. (laughs) which is kind of interesting. How do you have a port without water? Well, that's because not only was there a a harbor there, but there was also a river that flowed into the harbor that continually brought silt from the hills. And after centuries, that harbor got more and more silt in it to where the harbor finally gets pushed further and further and further. And today, the Aegean Sea is five miles from the ruins of Ephesus. Grain by grain, the sea gets further and further away. I thought about that not just in relation to the silting of the harbor, but the silting of the heart. This is what Jesus is talking about in Revelation. I don't know that he's making a connection to the harbor, but we can do that because it's a good picture. We can can allow grain by grain of spiritual indifference. A little bit's no big deal, is it? I mean, it's just a grain. It's imperceptible, the movement of the coast farther and farther away. But the silting eventually happens, and it can happen in our spiritual lives, that our devotion to Christ can 
if we allow it, day by day, slowly get farther and farther and farther till one day we wake up and Jesus is way over there and we find ourselves living in the ruins, the archaeological ruins of a once vibrant spiritual life. Our doctrine and our deeds are great. We're never going to let that slide. But the hidden stuff, the love for Christ, the secret love for Christ, that's easy to hide. And it's easy to fake. And it's easy to have it five miles away when in reality we're telling everybody and maybe even telling ourselves that we have a vibrant walk with God. Jesus is saying, he's showing, it's possible You can have great doctrine, you can have great deeds, but you can also have a devotion that needs to get back to where it started, back to the first love. So here's the final principle. Verse uh, verse 4 tells us that Christ wants our love for him to be our motivation for our deeds for him. Don't just do the good deeds that God's prepared ahead of time. Don't just do the deeds that this season of life gives you the opportunity to do. But here's why you do it. Because you love him. Because you love him. Remember when Jesus was raised and in John 21, he took Peter for a little walk by the Sea of Galilee, and he asked Jesus, uh, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter says, well, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Shepherd my my lambs. See, the motivation for doing all the good stuff is love. It's love. It's not just truth. It's love. Look at verse 5. Can't not read this. Jesus says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent And do the deeds you did at first, meaning motivated by love. Or else, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yikes! What in the world does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you're going to like lose your salvation. Look, look, because look what else he says, verse 6 and following. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and here's the good news. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes is John's catchphrase for he who believes. He, he's written in the, the Gospel of John that the one who overcomes is the one who believes. So Christ is saying, look, you're still saved. You, you still believe. What I'm talking about, removing your lampstand, is removing your influence. And remember, he's writing to a church, not just to individuals, but to a church. Christ says, you want to continue to be used by me effectively in the community? Get back to your first love. Because otherwise, I can take the light out of your church, and you can just go ahead and play church without the true devotion to me. That's hard to hear. But that's a reality. That's a potential. And it begins with our individual passion to have a love for Jesus Christ. Christ wants our love for him to be our motivation for our deeds for him. The, um, the ruins there in Ephesus are, are wonderful to look at. You know, if you uh, ever get a chance to go, do, because it will give you great pictures for what we've read. 
And there's some neat things to see there. There's the theater in which uh, Paul and the riot in Acts 19 happened. There's the Agora, which we talked about. Um, the Agora is the great marketplace there. They found some first century houses that you can walk through, and it's like walking through them today uh, like they were in, uh, in Paul's day. But there's also a public toilet, which is kind of interesting to go in. The, uh, the, the public toilet, I don't know if you've ever seen an ancient toilet, but it's not like ours. There's just kind of seats you know, around, and they're, they're stone seats. Imagine what that's like in the winter. And our guide told us that what they would do, if you could afford it, you would pay someone to go early and warm up your seat. <laughs> you know, after my uh, Yosemite Fresno experience, I thought, I hope they had good signage on the seats there because you'd hate to have to warm it up twice. But when you realize, and I think about that, when you realize that you are where you shouldn't be, for, for example, like a man locked in a woman's restroom, wisdom says you run to back, back to where you belong. Jesus says if you realize you find yourself in, in a spiritual life where you're just going through the motions and you don't love me like you did at first, Jesus' words here, verse 5, repent. That, that means change your thinking. Change your thinking and do the deeds you did at first. Love me just like you did at first. That's what I want you to do, he says. It's easy to let the coast drift from us, to let the silt of spiritual indifference creep in. It's happened in my life. And I think, in some sense, it happens every day in our lives. We've constantly got to be shoveling that silt out of our hearts because the world deposits it. We've got to be aware of it, find it, and just keep shoveling it out so that our love for Christ is, is very real and very genuine. And when it isn't, that we repent. So let's repeat those principles one final time. God has fashioned us for today's good works that we would pursue them. Second, God wants us to make the most of the season that we're in right now. And finally, Christ wants our love for him to be our motivation for our deeds for him, our love for him. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, your Son has clearly told us here in Revelation but also throughout the scripture and even in the gospels where he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's really pretty clear right there in that statement. And that is an encouragement, but that is also deeply convicting because so often we find in our lives that we aren't doing what Jesus has commanded. And our motivation for doing so and for repenting is that we love him. We love him because he gave his life for us. We love because he first loved us and gave himself for us as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we pray for any who do not know you or who question their walk with you. 
that if they were to die today, they are not real sure why you might let them into heaven. That you'd open their eyes to grace, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, that they are not saved by good works, but by grace through faith in Jesus, who died for their sins. And for those of us who do believe that message, that we would take the next verse that reminds us that we've not been saved by works, but for works. That you would give us eyes to see purpose in our lives rather than just coasting and maintaining our spiritual lives. That our passion would be spiritual growth, not spiritual maintenance. Give us a passion to be like Jesus, not just like the person next to us who is the standard. Thank you, Father, for giving us this uh, wonderful encouragement today to repent, to refocus, and to renew our love for Jesus, who gave himself for us and who promises one day to come and get us. And we pray in his name. Amen.